So those of you who are regulars uh, in Sojourners, uh, as opposed to 32 short or some other size, uh, those of you who are regulars in Sojourners know that we are, in our march through the Old Testament, we are endeavoring to do two things. One is what's going to start next Sunday, which is getting into the leaves, the pine needles, and the acorns of the books of the Old Testament. Uh, it's my job today to look at the forest. Um, that is to do an overview of the book of Daniel, which is the next book that we will be uh, going through. Now, last week, Joe did a, a biography of Daniel, uh, which was very helpful in setting the stage and allowing me to leave things out. Uh, <laughs> but um, he did an excellent job. But he did not mention this, which is Daniel is one of the few people in the Bible of whom nothing negative is said. Uh, there aren't very many, um, and among major characters. Uh, a lot of people, there's only one thing said about them. But in terms of major characters, there aren't that many that the Bible doesn't criticize at some point or scold. Uh, and Daniel is one of those select few. So he's a well-known biblical hero, and we all learned about him in uh, Sunday school, etc. But he would tell you, if he were here, now Daniel just did prayer, but it's a different Daniel. But Daniel, who wrote the book of Daniel, would tell you, if he was here, that his book is not about him. His book is about Yahweh. His book is about God. And so that's the focus that we're going to have today. Um, I've entitled the, this uh, message, The Supremacy of Yahweh, and I believe that's what the book of Daniel is all about. It is showing the supremacy of Yahweh God as opposed to the gods of the nations or as opposed to men, uh, even very prominent men and powerful men. And what Daniel shows throughout is that God is supreme. So let's launch right into it. I apologize in advance for moving rapidly, but I did a lot of detail, relatively detailed PowerPoints, so you can see it at least uh, as I'm going along. So in my view, the book of Daniel separates very nicely into two parts, and basically right in the middle in terms of chapters. Uh, chapters 1 to 6 into one part, and chapters 7 to 12 in another part. And the first part, chapters 1 to 6, um, I have called, God displays his power through knowledge and individual deliverances. The book of Daniel is all about God displaying his power, his supremacy. And in the first six books, he does it primarily through knowledge, and through individual deliverances. And most of what we are familiar with in the book of Daniel comes from these first six chapters with the individual deliverances, right? Things about fiery furnaces and lion's dens and so forth. Um, and so that's what the first uh, part of the book is about. And I'm going to be parachuting over and dropping into verses along the way. Obviously, if I'm doing the entire book in one uh, message... We can't read through everything. So uh, if you want to follow and uh, drop into verses with me, that would be uh, nice. Otherwise, the PowerPoints will 
uh, sort of highlight things for you. So um, the first thing I want to talk about, uh, I, I suggest that chapter 1 is Yahweh elevates Daniel and his friends. And by elevates here, I mean raises them to significance, to positions of authority and significance uh, in Babylon where they are, of course, in captivity, which um, Joe talked about last week. And the first verse I'm going to look at is verse 4, which says uh, about Daniel and his friends, they were youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. Now, there's, this is several ways of showing that these youths were recognized by the king and his servants as superior types of youths. Uh, and what I want to emphasize is that this is what the world seeks. Um, these are things that the world looks at. And so as they're looking at these youths, they reflect the things that the world wants to see. And I've talked about this before in other messages. I, I teach ancient history, and in, throughout history, when people are looking for rulers, they usually look for someone who's good-looking. And in fact, in the Bible, it, it says that Saul was good-looking, and then it says that David was good-looking. And the one ruler that it doesn't say was good-looking is in Isaiah 53. And God's ways are different than those of man, but God made sure that these guys that he was going to elevate would be the types of guys that the world would look at to elevate. And so they, in fact, had these characteristics. Then dropping down to verse 8, um, Joe talked about this last week, so we, we won't um, pursue it very long, but Daniel here stays true to Yahweh's law. When he's offered the choice foods of the king, he stays true to what the law told him he could eat and not eat. And uh, Joe talked about that really well last week, so if you didn't hear it, then you should pull up the message and listen to it, because I'm done with it. Verse 9, Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Favor and compassion. We just, we just heard part of that this morning uh, in uh, Austin's message. Favor here is the word hesed, or hesed, um, which is the word for grace. And so God granted Daniel grace. And I'm going to suggest to you that that explains much of what happens in the book of Daniel. The fact that God extended his grace to Daniel, unmerited favor, and uh, took him through problems, elevated him to leadership uh, in the, in the uh, government over multiple kings, ultimately heading up all of the wise men, etc. Uh, it's all a reflection of God's grace. Then uh, Joe talked last week about the dieting thing uh, in which uh, Daniel said, we're not going to eat your foods, let us eat these other foods. I just wanted to point out that uh, verse 12 says, let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then verse 15 says, they were fatter than all the youths. So all of you dieters, 
So much for that. All right, to more significant points, more important points. Verses 17 and 18, it says, And as for these four youths, now this is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm using their Babylonian names because that's the way we all know them from Sunday school. Um, it says, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And so again, God is elevating them uh, with things that the world wants that shows that Yahweh, who is the source of what they have, is supreme. Yahweh is the one who is giving them the knowledge and intelligence. Yahweh is the one who is allowing Daniel to interpret visions and dreams. So, the overall theme here is obedience and faithfulness that God recognizes and honors in elevating them. So let's move to chapter 2. Oh, okay, that's the other part of what I was going to say. Um, so I just said it. So they're wiser and more elevated in status. All right, let's move to chapter 2. I have a dream. That's uh, what chapter 2 is about. Um, and uh, in verse, uh, verses 5 and 6, the king has a safeguard for fraud. So the king has had a dream, he wants it interpreted, and none of the wise men can do it because he's demanding not just that they interpret the dream, but that they tell him what the dream was and then interpret it. And of course, they can't fake that. Uh, and so ultimately, Daniel comes along, and God, of course, reveals to him what the dream is. Uh, he tells the dream and the interpretation, and this is what gives the king confidence in Daniel and elevates him above the other wise men. And verses 10 and 11 are important here. The Chaldeans answered, the, the wise men answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean, moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. There is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. This sets up verses 27 and 28 of chapter 2. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the, to the king. So, I'm sorry, you're out of luck. Oh, wait, there's verse 28. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed, and then he tells them the dream. So here uh, is the opportunity again for Yahweh to show his supremacy. The wise men can't do it. The gods that they rely on can't do it. But Daniel can because 
Yahweh here is showing his supremacy over the false gods. He makes the, power, he makes the knowledge known, his power known through the knowledge that he gives to Daniel. He allows Daniel to know what no man can know, that only gods can know, but they can't either because the other guys called on all the other gods. So everyone now knows who Daniel's God is. Everyone now knows the Yahweh behind Daniel. God is demonstrating his supremacy. Then, when I was teaching through the, the entire Bible to our Bible study, um, in each book, I pointed out one key verse. I like to pick one key verse for each, each book to sort of summarize things. The key verse, in my, in my estimation, in Daniel, is in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21 says this, It is he, God, Yahweh, who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. This pretty well sums up the book of Daniel. So we're done. <laughs> no. Probably want to do a little more. But this verse basically sums up the book of Daniel. This part where he talks about he gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding, that's a good summary of ch verses, or chapters 1 to 6. And then removing kings, establishing kings, times and epics, that's a pretty good description of chapters 7 through 12. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a good uh, key verse. Now, another thing to point out is verse 24 of chapter 2. When, when Daniel is given the, the dream by Yahweh and the interpretation, he doesn't just present it on his own behalf. Look at verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, because Nebuchadnezzar was going to wipe these guys out, these wise guys, because they weren't wise. They were, they were fakes in his mind, because they couldn't do what they were supposed to be able to do. So he's going to wipe them all out. So Daniel goes there uh, to the one who was appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation of the king. So he intercedes not just on his own behalf, but on behalf of all the other wise men. And I'm going to argue, I can't prove it, you didn't pay tuition for this, as I would tell students when I give my opinion. But I think this is how Daniel earns the respect of the wise men over whom he's going to be their leader. He's going to be placed in charge of all the wise men of Babylon. And I think this is how he gains their respect and, and their honor, so to speak, uh, by this. Also, look at verse 30. When Daniel does reveal this to the king, look at verse 30. Uh, but as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Notice Daniel's humility. He focuses on God. He doesn't take credit. Um, he said it's revealed to me, so first of all, he's deflecting that, but also not because of me, not because of anything special about me. He knows that he has received grace 
from God, as we saw back in chapter 1. And uh, so it's not deserved, it's just God using him for this purpose. So then verses 31 to 45 of uh, chapter 2, most of the rest of the chapter, God reveals the dream and its meaning. And, oops, God reveals the dream and its meaning. And we're just going to run over this quickly because the other guys who are going to go into the pine needles will get into it in more detail later. So we're just going to kind of introduce the the basics here. So we have uh, Nebuchadnezzar's initial dream. All right? He's got more than one. This is the first one. And it is about four coming kingdoms plus one other. Four coming kingdoms plus one other. Verse 32 is reference to the head of God, and it's about a statue. It's a statue that's a weird statue because its parts are made up of different things. All right? It's almost like a Frankenstein statue. Uh, And um, so in verse 2, it lays out the, the different parts of it, which it has a head of gold. And verses 37 and 38 tell us that this is about Babylon. So this is the continuing reign of Babylon for a period of time, which Nebuchadnezzar has been told in in Jeremiah 27 that it will be him, his son, and his grandson. That will be Babylon's time, and then their time will be up. Uh, And so then there is a breast uh, and arms on the statue made of silver, and verse 39 tells us this is about Medo-Persia, which is the second kingdom, Then the third kingdom is Greece under Alexander the Great, and it is the belly and thighs of bronze in the statue. And then the fourth kingdom has two parts, basically. So the the feet and the legs are made of iron and clay, two different things, because it's two parts. It's Rome and then ultimately revived Rome. Because in Daniel, we get prophecies that that are fulfilled in the short run, and then prophecies that are fulfilled in the long run. And so this is kind of a first indication of that. And so these are, this is his dream, and this is what it means. Okay, But there's also another part to it. In addition to the statue, there is a stone, a stone cut without hands. Um, And the significance of that is it doesn't have human agency. It's not something done by man. That's why it says it's cut without hands. It's not done by man. And this stone is, in fact, the Messiah's kingdom who crushes the last part of the statue. The stone comes and crushes the feet of clay that is the revived Rome. Like, what are you talking about, man? Well, someone's going to get to that later. Give it a few weeks, uh, and someone will go into it in detail. We don't have time. So it's four parts, four parts headed by men, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and one part headed by the God-man, the Messiah. All right? Look at verse 37, look at Nebuchadnezzar's response to this. 
page that's the right verse 47 that's wrong on the screen it should be verse 47 somebody made a mistake couldn't have been me 47 verse 47 the king answered daniel and said surely your god is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. So this is the first time that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges Yahweh's supremacy. It's not the last time, but it's the first time that he acknowledges Yahweh's supremacy. So what's the point of Daniel doing all this? Just so that Nebuchadnezzar has information or just so that Nebuchadnezzar won't kill Daniel and the wise guys? No, it is to display God's supremacy. It is to lift up Yahweh, to glorify God. That's what's happening here and throughout the book of Daniel. All right, chapter 3. Nebi gets hot and so do three other guys. Now, I just want to mention, we go straight from 247, in which Nebuchadnezzar is saying, your God is a God of gods, a Lord of kings, etc., to chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, and verse 5, at the moment that you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Now, I was going to make a joke here, but I didn't want to feel, offend Neil McLeod, but he says I should. So I was going to say on verse 5 that any normal person, when they heard a bagpipe, would fall down. <laughs> but I won't say that. But the point is, Nebuchadnezzar has a short memory, right? He just got through proclaiming the greatness of Yahweh, and then he builds a statue and tells people to bow down to it, right? That's almost like, I don't know, human nature. It's almost like the Israelites building a golden calf while Moses is still talking with God on the mountain. Uh, Not much of a time frame there. All right, so the command then comes, verses 4 to 6, to... Uh, engage in false worship, Um, then look at verse 13. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse. In verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then these men were brought before the king. Um, he, He gets hot. He gets angry, he gets mad, very mad. And so verse 19 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He's really hot, and he's going to make sure that they're really hot as a result. And uh, we're familiar with the story But what I want to focus on is their response. After Nebuchadnezzar's question in verse 15. Look at the last line of verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar says, What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? As I said, he has a short memory, and Yahweh's about to tell him who that God is. He's going to show him who the supreme God is. But look at their response. 
verses 17 and 18. They say in verse 16, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer. But if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What a great response. Worthy of copying. Then in verse 24, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king, when they're in the fire... Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded, stood up in haze. He responded to his officials, Was it not three men we cast into the midst of the fire? But now they see four. Verse 25, he answered, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Well, That's because the fourth person is likely the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. But then verse 27. My question is, why is verse 27 here? Look at verse 27. After they come out, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor, that why is this part here? Nor was there the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. This verse is here because there is no, God leaves no possible alternate explanation. This just runs, it flies in the face of everything we know about fire. And smoke. And I could give you a couple of humorous stories, but I don't have time um, of my own experiences with this. So the point is Yahweh leaves no possible alternate explanation. There's no other way. There's nothing else that could that could explain this. Alright? So we get then to verse 29, where Nebuchadnezzar says, Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Nebuchadnezzar just asked his own question from verse 15. Who is a God that could do this? There is no other God than the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because Yahweh has demonstrated his supremacy. Chapter 4. And it's actually the last three verses in which he talks, but that's the one I wanted to highlight. So that's chapter 3. Chapter 4. Nebi goes from king to tree to animal to king. So we can just kind of, well, we should probably explain that. So Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. I'm not, there's, I don't know, I've never heard if his wife said he was a dreamy guy, but anyway, he has another dream. This one is about a great tree that grows and then is cut down. 
And so in verses 1 to 3, he starts to lay out the situation. And then in verses 4 to 17, he has another dream. So this is a chapter in which Nebuchadnezzar, we're basically getting into Nebuchadnezzar's journal. He's basically reporting this, all right? So in the first three verses, he gives a background to the fact that he has a dream. And that dream is talked about in verses 4 to 17. And in the dream, there's a tree, which he doesn't know this, but he's about to be told it. The the tree represents or reflects Nebuchadnezzar's pride. The tree grows large and strong. Its height reaches to the sky. It's visible to the whole end of the earth. Its foliage is beautiful. Its fruit abundant, uh, so on and so forth. That's verses 11 and 12. But the dream prophesies his downfall. The, the tree is chopped down. There's nothing but the stump and the roots left. And this reflects the fact that God has seen Nebuchadnezzar's pride after twice already he has been forced to recognize the supremacy of Yahweh, yet he has built himself up now into, this, um, into a high level of pride, and so now Yahweh is going to humble him. And so in verses 18 to 27, Daniel interprets the dream and warns him. And uh, he doesn't take the warning, and so verses 28 to 33, uh, we're probably familiar with this from when we were children as well, God basically turns him into an animal. Uh, And his reason is gone, and he's eating grass, and he's fundamentally what we would today call insane. God takes his mind away from him, and Uh, He has him grow fingernails like claws, and he basically becomes an animal. That's verses 28 to 33. And then we have verses 34 to 37, in which Yahweh says this, or Nebuchadnezzar says this, verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? This, I would argue, reflects Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. He finally repents, he finally turns his eyes to heaven, and he finally recognizes who is, in fact, supreme and greater than him. It takes the humbling of being turned into an animal, and then he is restored as king, and a king who I believe we will see in heaven. There's a debate about that. I talked with the important people in this class. Well, I didn't talk to Chris. I talked with the important people in this class, and they said that they think he, he was, uh, it's reflecting conversion as well. So, all right. Um, now, that brings us to chapter 5. Oh, no, I wanted to mention this just quickly. I don't have time to go into it, so I'll just put it up here, and you can look at it for yourself. I believe that chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, reflects 
what Jesus said in Luke 16, 31, neither will they believe if someone is raised from the dead. Nebuchadnezzar sees all this amazing stuff happen, right? The fiery furnace, all this stuff, and he still doesn't believe. I think it reflects Israel's experience in history. They see the parting of the Red Sea, they see all these other things, and they still don't believe. And it's the experiences and circumstances of the average sinful person. They can see God's glory in the world, as Romans 1 and 2 talks about, and so on and so forth, but they don't believe. And, it, and I think that Nebuchadnezzar's situation reflects those. Maybe something for you to meditate on. Chapter 5, Yahweh gives Belshazzar a hand. So you may be familiar with this story from your flannel graph days as well. Belshazzar, the king, is having a great feast, and it's a party by Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar. Some of you might have listened, two of you might have listened earlier when I said that God had said in Jeremiah 27 that Babylon would continue with Nebuchadnezzar, his son, and his grandson and then their time would be up. Well, this is his grandson. And his grandson and, their, and his uh, queen and, the, and the, his buddies are partying, uh, and they are drinking from vessels from the temple that had been taken from the temple in the exile and defiling them, and an uninvited hand shows up. No one sent an invitation to this hand for the party. It just shows up, and the hand starts writing on the wall, and it writes a message, and they don't know what it means, but verses 10 to 12, the queen knows about Daniel. Daniel's been tucked away in an ivory ivory tower somewhere which is where we studious types always are. We're in the ivory tower. We don't live in the real world or, or engage with real people. Uh, and so Daniel's been tucked away with the wise men somewhere and forgotten, basically. And so has his God been forgotten. So has Yahweh. Uh, but, he, but the queen remembers that this guy was an interpreter, a diviner. He's wise. He's clever from her description and verses... 10 to 12, um, and he, he has somewhat of a reputation that she at least remembers, and so she encourages Belshazzar, let's send for this guy, but again, Daniel's God, Yahweh, is forgotten. She doesn't say anything about Yahweh. She says, this guy is clever, and he's an interpreter, etc. And um, verses 13 to 28, then Daniel comes before the king, And he tells the king what this all means, what the message means, and so forth. And it is because Belshazzar has forgotten Yahweh, his kingdom is forfeited. Which, by the way, that takes some hair to go before the king and tell him that. Uh, But he actually gets the reward that Belshazzar had promised for uh, whoever could do this, although the reward doesn't help Daniel much because uh, Belshazzar dies that night. And uh, his, his reign, his time is up. And this is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 27, 7, in which um, Jeremiah says it'll be Nebuchadnezzar, his son, and his grandson, and then the time of Babylon will be over. And that very night, the time of Babylon is over with uh, his grandson. All right, which takes us to 
the very well-known chapter 6, where Daniel relaxes in the den. Now, in chapter 6, we have another key verse, in my humble opinion. It's a second, secondary key verse of Daniel. The previous one is the real key verse, but this one is also important. Because what we have here is jealous office seekers who don't like Daniel. They want his job, and they want to get him out of the way. And so they devise a scheme in order to get him in trouble, as you, most of you know. But look at verse 5, what they say. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. We aren't going to be able to get this guy unless we do something that makes him violate the law of his God because he is known for exemplary obedience. This is when I tell the college students, if you insist on violating the speed limit on the freeway, take the bumper sticker, the, the, the fish symbol, off of your car. You're a terrible testimony to Christ. If you're just like the world and you can't be inconvenienced for 45 seconds, I always, it always, always enjoy when I'm driving 55 because of the, the road work, or 65 in a normal case, and people fly by me, and then we come to the next stoplight, and I'm pulling up right next to them. <laughs> and they gained a lot. Um, Daniel didn't do that. Daniel was known for exemplary obedience, and they knew they couldn't get him to break the speed limit just because he was, by the way, late to church. I'm late to church. I think I'll violate God's command. Um, I'm sorry. So... They knew they had to come up with something that would make him violate the law of God. And so they came up with this law, this clever scheme, because it appealed to the king's vanity, even though the king liked Daniel. Okay? This king, Darius, he likes Daniel. And so they know they've got to trick the king too. So they come up with this law that appeals to the king's vanity, that no one can pray to anybody except the king for this period of time, and so on and so forth, because they know that Daniel will break that. And then verse 10 says, and, and I just want to just give my opinion on this. When Daniel knew the document was signed, he entered his house, his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks as he had been doing previously. Some, sometimes people say that he opened the windows here in order to be seen because he wanted to make a statement. I don't think that's true. Because the windows in, the, in, those, in those days were up high and small. And it specifically tells us why he opened the windows. He had his windows open toward Jerusalem. He was praying toward Jerusalem, where the temple would be. And so I don't think he opens the windows to be seen. They didn't need to see him. They knew what he would do. That's the point. They didn't need to see him. They could go in and just automatically know he's going to be doing that. They don't have to wait and see if they can catch him. They know what he's going to do. Verse 16. 
Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. But the king spoke to Daniel and said, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Your God will deliver you. Interesting statement from Darius, who, as I said, like Daniel, didn't want to put him in the lion's den, but he didn't have a choice. Uh, the Persians, Persian kings were bound by the edicts of the law. That isn't true in every civilization, but the Persian kings were. So once it became a law, he couldn't do anything about it. He was bound by the law. And so he had to uh, have uh, Daniel thrown into the lion's den. In fact, in verses 14 and 18 and 19, Darius gets mad with himself. He, Nebuchadnezzar got mad with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Darius is upset with himself that he was manipulated into, um, into doing this. And by the way, just in case you're wondering why the original guys went into a fiery furnace and this and Daniel goes into a lion's den, it's because there was a change of power. The Babylonians burned people alive. The Persians threw them into lion's dens. So that's why you have two different uh, things. It's not just so that we have a diverse um, flannel graph. There's a change in power, so there's a change in punishment. All right, so here's another interesting thing in verse 22. Daniel says... My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. So, wait a minute. An angel shows up. Hmm, interesting. Almost like chapter 3, verse 25, in which they notice there's a fourth person in the fiery furnace. And I would suggest to you that this is perhaps the same person here who comes to be with Daniel to comfort him and care for him in a time in which he is being obedient to Yahweh and his life is put in jeopardy in that regard. This is arguably God the Son, the second person of the Trinity again. May not be, may just be an angel sent by God, but either way, he is there to, ter to carry Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and now Daniel through the crisis that they're in because of their obedience to Yahweh. Uh, ironically, the king has the guys who, who did this cast into the lion's den. I say ironically because under... Uh, Deuteronomy 19, 18, and 19, under the Mosaic Law, the penalty for perjury was that you would receive the pe same penalty as the person that you accused. And so I think it's ironic that they get what the Mosaic Law would basically call for in this instance, but it's just an observation. Then verses 26 and 27, look what Darius says as a result of this. I make a decree that in all the dominions of my kingdom... Men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. 
He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Hmm. So, if we are obedient to Yahweh and do what he says, even though it might not seem rational or maybe wise in our estimation, but we're obedient to Yahweh, he honors that, and then he ends up being glorified by that. Interesting concept. Yahweh shows his superiority, shows his supremacy through the obedience and subjection, obedience to him and subjection to governing authorities that we see in these stories. Two great kings of great empires. Two great kings of great empires give witness to the supremacy and greatness of God. God doesn't spare Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or Daniel from hardship, but he brings them through the seemingly insurmountable difficulties, perhaps with them, if in fact it was God the Son who was in the fiery furnace with the original three and was in the lion's den with Daniel. Now I I note also verse 23 where it says, The king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in God. But then verse 24 says that when they throw the other guys in, they hadn't reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Why is that? Because they weren't just tossed into any lion's den, but these lions that were for this purpose were kept unfed on purpose so that they would dine on whoever was unfortunate enough to be tossed in there. So there again, there's no other possible explanation for how Daniel survives this. He's tossed in with these unfed lions, and as soon as he leaves and the other guys go in, they can't wait. There's actually a couple of other stories that are similar to this. Um, some use with Elisha and a young prophet and so forth, in which God sends a lion and it doesn't eat the donkey or anything. Um, so there's other stories in the Old Testament that, uh, that relate to this as well. All right, so Yahweh's supremacy is again displayed. So that's the first half. <coughs> Doing great. That's the first half. <coughs> Brings us to the second half, chapters 7 through 12, which actually we're doing okay because... Some of these chapters don't take as long. But I'm going to suggest to you that the second part, God displays his power, his supremacy, through knowledge again, and through the control over his control over history. So now it's not so much deliverance from lion's dens and so forth, it is his control over history. His knowledge of, his, of the flow of history in the future and his control over history shows that he is supreme. So chapter 7 is a vision of four beasts this time. It's the same empires as the earlier vision in chapter 2. It's just you have different animals. You have animals now instead of the statue. Okay, The same four 
In this case, Babylon is depicted as a lion with wings. Medo-Persia is depicted as a bear. Greece is depicted as a leopard. And then Rome is depicted as a different beast, which we don't know what it is. Daniel didn't know what it was. It's some unique, different beast, um, which has a horn. Uh, and the horn here is the Antichrist. So you have these four beasts now that reflect, again, these future coming empires that were talked about earlier. But there's something else. Along with the four beasts is not a beast, but someone who is the son of man. The son of man, which, of course, was Jesus' favorite name for himself. This is the Messiah. This son of man is the stone from the earlier vision, where you have four statue parts, now you have four beasts. You have a stone that crushes, now you have the son of man. Okay, So it's the same story, just told differently in different visions. Um, Verse uh, 4 of chapter 7 is interesting because it refers to Nebuchadnezzar. The first, which is the Babylon, was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. The wings being plucked refers to the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar, and then he is raised up to stand on his feet and given a human mind. That is, his reason is restored. So this is telling uh, that part of the story. Um, Verse 5 refers to three ribs um, in the bear. And those refer to the three parts of the Medo-Persians, which was they took over Babylon, absorbed Babylon. So you have Babylon, Media, and Persia making up the Medo-Persian Empire. And it says uh, there in verse 5 that, that, that they were told to arise and devour much meat. That's because they still have conquering to do. They're going to devour more territory. Um, and that's what that's a reference to. Then chapter 6, or excuse me, verse 6. Verse 6 says, The leopard had four wings. Hmm, interesting, not normal for a leopard. Those reflect the speed of Alexander the Great, how quickly Alexander the Great moved across the world and conquering the world. Uh, I've talked about this in a a previous message in Zechariah 9, so I'm going to really, really fight off the temptation to go over it again. I'm not going to do it. Don't have time. Uh, but there's so much prophecy here in Daniel that, that Alexander the, about Alexander the Great in particular that history shows was just right down the line. Everything was fulfilled. You can listen to the other message. Um, so it's referring to the speed of Alexander and then the four generals. Uh, in verse 6, it has uh, on its back four wings of a bird. It also had four heads The four heads refers to the four generals who split up his empire after he fell. And it says, and dominion was given to it. That's because they conquered the world. Or he conquered the world. Alexander the Great did, the known world. Um, So he conquered Persia and the rest of the known world. 
verse 8. Um, it's talking about uh, another horn, a little one. Um, this is referring to the Antichrist. The, the fourth beast, there's two parts to it, just like there were in the original, and there's immediate Rome, and then there's ultimate Rome, the re reconstituted Rome, which is the Antichrist. Talks about he's given the eyes of a man, that refers to intelligence, and a boasting mouth. Um, I would encourage you to read these verses that are on the screen, Revelation 13, 5 and 6, and Second Th Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, to see about the boasting mouth of the Antichrist, uh, which is predicted here. Then verse 11 of chapter 7, um, it says, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. This is the same as being crushed by the stone in chapter 2. Um, it's just another way of putting the end, the destruction of the Antichrist. Um, Verse 13, here's where I encourage you to read Dr. Chow's book on visions. Um, there's, uh, Dr. Chow wrote a book on visions, connecting various visions in the Bible and arguing that uh, they, these various prophets all saw the same thing, just different pieces of a puzzle, and um, it's really quite fascinating. So uh, verse 13 is one of those visions that were also seen by Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the uh, Apostle John. And it is, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And, uh, and then in verse 14, dominion is given to him, glory, kingdom, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And it's referring, of course, to... Um, the eternal king, king, kingdom of the Messiah, uh, Christ. So, again, this is four plus one. Okay, and this is the plus one, the Son of Man. So this chapter deals with what with descriptions of these beasts and some of what happens to them, and then ultimately this Son of Man. I don't get it. Come back. They're going to go through and march through this. I'm going to mention that several times. They're going to march through this in, in great detail, I'm sure. Someone is. Um, then verses 20 to 27 talks about how the... Um, talks about how the Antichrist will overpower the saints for three and a half years. And then he will be annihilated, it says, crushed by the stone, um, or uh, will be slain, his body destroyed and given to the burning fire, if we're talking about the beast picture of it. So the Antichrist for three and a half years will reign and overpower the saints, then he'll be annihilated, then following that is the millennium, the millennial kingdom and Messiah's kingdom, which ends up being endless, but it's a worldwide kingdom, 
as opposed to these other kingdoms. Um, and I'm going to suggest to you what someone that I read suggested, which I think makes sense. Jesus ministered for three and a half years. Antichrist is Satan's counterfeit for Christ. That's kind of what the name Antichrist means. He's Satan's counterfeit. And uh, when you go through the book of Revelation, you see a number of ways in which Satan has counterfeits for the true things of God. And it makes sense to me that the three and a half years reflects or mirrors the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, but that's just somebody's opinion. So chapter 7 shows Yahweh's supremacy in his exclusive knowledge of the future through visions. But only Yahweh can give this knowledge because he controls the future. That's the point of chapter 7. Yahweh controls the future. He controls the rise and fall of nations. And so he has the knowledge of what will happen. It's another reflection of the supremacy of Yahweh. Chapter 8 is the vision of the ram, the goat, and the horn. And now we get another set of animals reflecting basically the other, um, what was said before, slightly different. The ram is Medo-Persia. We know that from verse 20, which specifically says it. And by the way, this is said before there is a Medo-Persia. But anyway, that's just maybe prophecy that God knows and other people don't know. Um, and uh, its larger horn is Persia. It's made up of two different parts. The larger horn is Persia. Verse 5 is a goat, which verse 21 tells us is Greece. We don't have to speculate. Uh, and, the, and it has a conspicuous horn, which refers to Alexander the Great, who was fairly conspicuous. Um, Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8, uh, I talked about in that other message in Zechariah 9 about how what's said here in verses 6 and 7 exactly happened that way in these two battles of Issus and Gagamela in which Alexander the Great defeated the Persians, right down to the details of what it says here. Uh, amazing thing. Um, And I'm skipping a lot of stuff here. Um, verse 8, Alexander's empire was divided into four parts. It says here, the male goat was magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in his place came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds. Um, and, he was, and so uh, Alexander's empire is divvied up among his four generals. Verses 9 to 14 turns to what happens out of one of those four empires. The Seleucid Empire, run by Seleucus, uh, coming out of that empire is Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. He is, ref he is referred to here in this passage as a small horn that comes out of there, and he persecutes the Jews and he also prefigures a later small horn that is talked about, which is the Antichrist. Going to get into this in detail later. If I tried to do any more now, we'd be here all afternoon. So I'm just trying to lay it out for you, give you a little foretaste of things to come. 
If you want to understand prophecy, Daniel is one of the best places to go. All right, so from now on, from this point on, Daniel could be renamed a tale of two antis. Because from now on, it's about the two antichrists, uh, basically. If you're confused, don't feel badly. God sends an angel to explain it to Daniel. That's what verse 15 says. Uh, Gabriel is sent to explain all of this to Daniel. It's, by the way, the first time that an angel is mentioned in the Bible by name, and Daniel's the only Old Testament book in which angels are named, Gabriel and Michael. Other than that, angels are just nondescript. Um, Verses 23 to 26 are about Antiochus in the short run, but the Antichrist in the long run. Um, Talks about them being broken without human agency. That's because disease takes down Antiochus and the God-man takes down the Antichrist. uh, Chapter 9 is Daniel's prayer. Daniel prays for Israel. It's about his prayer and God's answer to his prayer. His prayer focuses on confession of the people's sin and asks for God's mercy and grace. And his argument is interesting. Look at verse 19 of chapter 9. O Lord, hear, Lord, forgive, Lord, listen and take action for thine own sake. O my God, do not delay because the city and thy people are called by thy name. So Daniel asked for mercy and asked for the people to be spared because they represent Yahweh. So it's ultimately about Yahweh and his name. That's his argument. That's why he prays for them to be um, given mercy and grace. And so God sends Gabriel with an answer to Daniel's prayer, and it lays out the 70 weeks prophecy, um, which they're going to go over in detail, so don't panic. Uh, But it has to do with 70 periods of seven, that is 77-year periods, 490 years leading up to the Messiah, Uh, And so this is why the wise men came from the east at the time they did, because they studied under Daniel's teaching, ultimately, and they knew it was time for the Messiah to show up, Um, because it's all laid out here. Uh, And then there's a break between the 69th and 70th weeks, which someone will talk about later. But this is laying out the prophecy of the coming and the death, by the way, of the Messiah, the Jews should not have been surprised that the Messiah was killed. It's, it says so in verses 25 and 26 that he is cut off. Um, so uh, verses 26 and 27 are about the Antichrist. The 70th week is the time of tribulation. The 70th week is seven years like each of the weeks is. And it is the time of tribulation. Just leaving it so people can take a picture or whatever. Chapter 10 describes the angel giving the revelation to Daniel and it gives a foretaste of the uh, 
contents of chapters 11 and 12. He meets with several angels, one of whom is likely Christ again, second person of the Trinity, but there's an unnamed angel that lays out um, things to him. So this is just the chapter explaining how he learns what he's going to say in chapters 11 and 12, basically. Um, and, and the demonic opposition that Satan sends to try and block the angel from giving him that. Chapter 11 lays out the prophecy of the near term and end term of what's going to happen. They're the same prophecies as before, but shorter versions of them. There'll be four Persian kings. The last will stir up Greece. Then it's, there's Alexander. The empire is split among his generals. Then you have these two generals slug it out in verses 5 to 20. Coming out of one of them is Antiochus. And coming in that is the abomination of desolation that Jesus actually refers to as well in Matthew 24, 15. In which, what is the abomination of desolation? Antiochus will put up a statue of Zeus in the temple and sacrifice pigs on the altar. That's pretty serious stuff. Poking both of God's eyes, so to speak. Um, and so all of this is laid out here, that this is going to happen. And by the way, in verses 1 through 35 of chapter 11, someone counted there are 135 prophetic statements in these verses. All of them were fulfilled in history. We can, we can show fulfillment of all 135 of them in history. Then verses 36 to 45, oh, by the way, and that happens until the end time, that is the appointed time, it says, specifically. The appointed time, because Yahweh is in control. And so he has appointed the time at which this will happen. It's not up in the air, there's no wiggle room. Yahweh has appointed a time, that is the end time that God has determined then the, the word then in verse 36 pushes us to the future, to the future Antichrist in verses 36 to 45 deal with the Antichrist, not with Antiochus Epiphanes, the Antichrist wannabe. Okay? So here we are, chapter 12. Verse 45 is good. He will come to his end and no one will help him. That's because Yahweh is supreme. He's in control. Chapter 12. It's largely about the tribulation, but it's mostly giving comfort in the tribulation. Not to the people who shouldn't get comfort in the tribulation, but the people who need comfort in the tribulation. So let me just toss these things out here. We know it's the tribulation. Verse 1 says it's the time of distress such as has never occurred. Chapter 2 talks about resurrection. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to everlasting contempt or abhorrence. So this is reference to the resurrection in both directions. Resurrected to eternal life and resurrection to eternal death. Uh, it's the first mention of eternal life in the First Testament. Um, 
Verse 4 is interesting, comfort for Daniel, because he's told that people during the, revel- during the tribulation period will look at his book for understanding what's going on at the time. Um, tells us three and a half years for the tribulation. That's an encouraging thing. It's only going to last three and a half years. There's an end in sight. God has it all laid out. That's meant as encouragement and comfort. Many will be saved. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 says one-third will be saved, but many won't be saved, the other two-thirds. So it's partly encouraging. But then verse 13, as the book ends, As for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into you, Daniel, will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. This is a promise of resurrection to Daniel and of reward. He will receive his allotted portion. So whether by his unique knowledge of all things present and future, or by his ability to miraculously deliver his people, or by his control over history and the rise and fall of nations, or by his ability to determine the end of all things, Yahweh shows himself in the book of Daniel as sovereign and supreme over all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you for this message that is given there. We ask, Father, that you would help us as we dive into this in greater detail to plumb the depths and to um, be able to glorify you even more and to recognize you, Yahweh, as supreme over all as others have been forced to do. We want to do it, Father, not because we're forced to, but because we love you. Amen.